Welcome to the Team Gurus Podcast. I'm Mary Walter, and I'm here with my partner, Brian Buford. Hi there, everyone. Brian and I, if you're new to the podcast, will tell you we are executive and leadership coaches, and our passion is around developing high-performing executive teams. And boy, have we been busy lately, Brian. We've just had a number of teams that we've been working with, some um, very healthy, some that have some behaviors that need to change. But man, we've been really busy doing a lot of offsites lately and designing some very unique agendas. We have been. And man, it is fun. Uh, you know, of, of all the things we do, we've talked about this coaching and uh, retreats and teaching, keynote speaking. I, I think we both love the team work the best because it's the most complex and the most interesting. And just like every leader is different, every team is different. And um, it's a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. It's so meaningful to watch a team yeah. move to the next level and the results and performance have been remarkable. So yeah, that work is is terrific and, and we've been really enjoying it and been very busy lately. But today we are just thrilled to have a wonderful guest. We are joined today with Rear Admiral June Ryan. Rear Admiral Ryan is a motivational speaker, a success trainer, and a coach who draws upon her 35 years of military service and three formal certifications in that work. I was lucky enough to meet Admiral Ryan at a national leadership conference where we both spoke on a coaches panel together. And June delivered a keynote address that was just absolutely enthralling and left everyone in the room inspired and just brimming with confidence. And so I knew we had to get her on the podcast. <laughs> so June has just had an amazing career and she translates that into her work today. She conducts full and half day workshops. She delivers full keynotes and motivational moments, kind of short, brief keynotes that elevate any conference into an amazing experience. And I've seen that in person. So June developed those principles during her 35 year military career. Admiral Ryan was a trailblazer, achieving many historical achievements for women, including the first enlisted woman in the Coast Guard to rise to the rank of Rear Admiral. She was also the first woman to serve as military advisor to the Secretary of Homeland Security and the third woman in our nation's history to serve as the military aide to the President of the United States. June served in a wide variety of leadership roles, including five command positions, two ships, and three larger ashore commands. Rear Admiral Ryan holds a Bachelor of Science degree in biology from Bowling Green University and a Master of Arts degree in adult education from the University of South Florida. We are just thrilled to have you with us. Welcome, June. Thank you. <laughs> the long bio, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Your career is awesome. I could go on and on. I, I told June before we started, it's hard to edit because there's so many fantastic things that she's accomplished. So Rear Admiral Ryan, can you tell us a little bit about your career and tell us a little about your journey and deciding to go into the Coast Guard and, and how you chose that path for yourself? Oh, sure. So thank you so much, first of all, for having me on the podcast. I'm so excited. And it was great to, to be with you on that coaches panel. What a great opportunity to share with other folks. Um, but really, I started off in the Coast Guard as a Coast Guard enlisted member in the reserves. Um, I saw a Coast Guard commercial. And the theme of it was um, start a legacy. And it talked about this family that had been on the Outer Banks for generations since our nation was actually born. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, uh, that family still has people today serving in the Coast Guard. 
really an amazing story. So I started off as a deckhand. I then finished college and applied for officer candidate school. And from there, uh, continued my active duty service. So serving aboard ships, as you already mentioned, uh, various different commands and a stint at the, at the White House. So I was born and raised in Bettendorf, Iowa. Never thought I would see the White House, let alone be inside the White House. So it was just a really amazing, uh, you know, amazing journey. Fantastic. I probably never maybe even thought you'd be on the coast. (laughs) (laughs) Terrific. (laughs) But when you look back, I mean, I just think it's so amazing to rise from being a deckhand to where you ended up. When you think about all those roles, June, what shaped you as a leader? And how can you think of a role that really made a difference to you and how you lead today? Yeah, so I think um, I think the one role that I reflect back on that really shaped who I became was my very first ship command. Um, I was 24 years old. I was in Portland, Maine, and uh, did my time on a larger cutter where you have a captain and, and large crew. This one was, I was uh, the only officer and everyone else on the ship was enlisted. It, it was 95 feet long out of Portland, Maine. Um, and in a larger ship, it's very formal. So officers and enlisted eat separately and everything. And so when I got there, I still had this very large formality of they're enlisted and I'm officer. And although I'd been prior enlisted, you also didn't want to cross those boundaries, right? Um, and then about a month into my tour, I was sitting in my room. Every, all the other crew was just going to go out and have a, have a nice drink out at one of the bars we had just pulled in from a pretty hard patrol. And I heard this knock, knock, knock at the door. It was my number two, my executive officer. And he's like, look, you can play this officer enlisted thing for the whole two years you're here, or you can come join us for for a beer. (laughs) Can you give me five minutes? (laughs) Like, I want a beer. Um, Officers enlisted didn't associate with one another. Well, of course, on a smaller crew, those barriers get broken down. And so I learned very quickly that going out, having the first or buying the first or second round is good. You don't want to stay there. When they have three or four, that's time for you to leave. Right. You're pretty drunk. But uh, yeah, so that that really is what shaped me. And, and I really came to learn that although I was a leader, we were a team. And um, I didn't know everything. There were people who had been on the cutter for three years. They knew everything about that cutter, you know, mm-hmm. and I did not. And so then it really flipped. Look, I need to learn from you. And as soon as that flip made, uh, you know, that changed everything. So. That's probably probably the most memorable and really which, what made that pivot for me. And, and June, can, June, can you describe what a cutter is? I, I think I know what it is, but I don't want to assume. And I imagine, you know, the, the, the size and the type of the ship matters in terms of leadership in the Coast Guard. Right. So, uh, so cutters in the Coast Guard are large vessels that are anything larger than 65 feet. So anything smaller than 65 feet, we call boats and anything larger is a cutter. Um, A cutter actually has one person in charge and the crew stays on board where the small boats you'll see maybe at the small stations, they'll have three or four ship, um, three or four boats right there. You know, it looks like a house. looks like a house with a white roof. (laughs) That's what a Coast Guard uh, station looks like. So that's the difference between kind of a a cutter and a boat. There's one person in charge and and that, that crew stays there. On a station, it's like 30 people and you have you rotate through duty through the day of the duty. So got it. Got it. Thank you. So I can imagine that you've worked with tens of hundreds of leaders um, across your career, lots of different positions. Um, If you had to pick one, who's the best leader that you've worked with or for 
um, best leader of teams and people, and, and what made them the best? Well, I got to tell you, it's hard to pick one. <laughs> yeah, I know, and I, I'm sure there are many. Yeah. Um, so I would say for um, boy, I would almost you know I would almost go back to that first story I said would yeah number two person. So he wasn't actually the leader there, but he led everybody. He was an expert on that ship. Um, his name was Paul Dilger. I still stay in contact with him. He retired up in Maine. Awesome. And he ended up actually to be the first, and I didn't even think about this. He became the very first Coast Guard master cutterman. And Mm. he served all but two years aboard Coast Guard cutters. So Mm. he really became, uh, and he actually started this whole new category called master cutterman. And he was recognized by the commandant. We now have 12 or 13 master cuttermen. Mm. Um, He wasn't actually the person in charge. I was in charge, but, um, but he really probably was the number one leader. The other one I would say would be our commandants like Admiral Zucumpt and Admiral um, Allen, um, because both of them led really large, diverse teams in crisis. So Deepwater Horizon um, or Katrina, Mm -hmm. both of those. Um, And in the Coast Guard, it's unique in that we can't do what we want to do by ourselves. We -hmm. are very focused on it's a team effort. So when Deepwater Horizon came in, right? So we needed help from the local authorities, from EPA, from FEMA, from, um, you know, from BP. You know, if you talk about a hurricane, you're talking about the governor's office. And so so to be able to bring all of these diverse teams together and then move them in one direction, um, and they do that so very skillfully. And I think that's what the Coast Guard really teaches everybody um, in the Coast Guard is when you go to an event, it's not your event. You're not, you know... <laughs> It's mm-hmm. everybody's. And the more people you can draw in, the more successful you'll be. So that's really kind of their leadership approaches, draw more people in and that will lead to more success. It's really cool. Do you ever find in those kind of situations that um, there's sparring uh, people trying to take responsibility or trying to take ownership that you had to navigate as a leader in those kind of, as you're describing, it's almost a service and support role. And yet I would imagine there's some kind of jockeying for position. How did you navigate that? Yeah. So, so Deepwater Horizon would have been a great um, um or, or even Katrina. So yeah. when you talk about multiple states with multiple governors right before an election, it tends right. to <laughs> So to some degree, it wasn't what somebody wanted to step up for responsibility. They wanted more like somebody to blame. Um, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, got yeah, it. Yeah. Got it. You know, uh, it, it is less, less about the responsibility. But um, so, and it's interesting because it also happens within U.S. government. So for example, one of my very first... Um, exercises for a terrorist event, um, we brought in the community together and the FBI agent came in very, you know, very FBI-like, you know, hi, I'm the FBI, I'm in charge, we're, we're the lead for terrorists. And I'm like, okay, well, but this is what we're doing. And, you know, this is an event. We also have an oil spill. We have, you know, all these other things of the ship that had gone aground. Mm-hmm. You know, terrorism was what caused it. But then you have all these other environmental factors he has to take into account. And he's like, oh, I don't want to do that. You want to be incident commander? You know, you didn't want to be right. all of this. I do believe you have the law enforcement and you need to, you know, get the evidence and do the law enforcement piece on the terrorism piece to be able to run that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that's my piece. And I'm like, okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> You know, maybe, and I, I think this is an important question, um, or at least something to discuss. Can you just say a little bit about the Coast Guard and, and how it is similar, but I guess more important, how it is different from the other military branches? I've always found it kind of fascinating just in terms of 
what it is. And I, I don't know if many, many of us really under, quite understand it and appreciate the Coast Guard. Right. So, um, so the, the most obvious piece is that we are not under the Department of Defense. Um, we are under Department of Homeland Security. We actually used to be under the Department of Transportation. Um, and the reason for that is if you are under the Department of Defense, in order for the Department of Defense to take action against a U.S. citizen, you have to declare martial law. And so we are a regulatory agency. So we go out on the water today and we, I guarantee you, somewhere in the country, we're uh, somewhere in the world, we're boarding a U.S. vessel and enforcing all U.S. laws. Do you have your life jackets? Do you have your fire extinguishers? Um, so we are a law enforcement agency at the same time we are simultaneously a Department of Defense. So when we go to the Persian Gulf, for example, and um, remember when the oil tankers were being taken over, we were part of that. And so we did not, unlike the Department of Defense, they sometimes have to shift from a law enforcement to a DOD hat and back. For us, it's completely seamless. And the lawyers will then do a timeline of the events that happened and then say, the Coast Guard person transitioned from, you know, from Department of Defense to investigation, who's responsible for the terrorism at this point on the timeline. But for, for us in the field, there's absolutely none. But we're responsible for your lighthouses, your buoys, um, law enforcement, aids navigation, fisheries. So fisheries is a multi-billion dollar industry, particularly up in Alaska. Um, foreign vessels will come into our waters and sweep it clean, just like they would clear cut a forest if we don't go out and regulate the fishing. So I always say, if, if you enjoy fish, thank a coastie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Noah actually writes the regulations like this is the size fish. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Coast Guard is the one that actually goes in uh, enforcing mm -hmm. that, right? Just like a yeah. you know, city decides that it's a 35 mile an hour zone, but it's the police officer that's, that's enforcing it. So it's oh. very similar to that. Yeah, that's really how it, how it varies, but we are worldwide. We're, Smaller than the New York City Police Department, we're only about 40,000 strong. So in most, wow. most of your larger um, college stadiums, we would only fill half. You would you could fit every Coastie wow. in the stadium and still have yeah. half the stadium to fill. But we are pole to pole. Ever since Titanic, we have been actually on the North Pole and the South Pole. Wow. Um, you know, breaking ice for McMurdo down in the South Pole and then keeping the northern uh, people up in the northern stretches also safe. So wow. worldwide. Well, uh, across your career and the many different roles, how would you say that you've changed the most um, as a leader? Maybe contrasting um, now or how you ended your uh, official uh, duty versus when you started. Um, how has you changed the most? Um, I would think probably the, ch the way I changed the most was just from the strategic view. So when mm -hmm. you're a ship captain, you're very myopically focused yep. on nine crew members and I yep. have... Uh, a fishing boat vessel that's you know disabled and my job is to get from here to here to there bring everybody on the fishing boat back safely and bring everybody on my crew back safely mm -hmm. you know um and then as you get uh, higher up in my my um shore base commands they were you know they were regionally based so now you're now you're bringing teams of teams together and then it's you know what what do they need across across the teams to be able to be successful what equipment do they need what budget do they need making some of those kind of hard trade-offs because, you know, mm -hmm. in the federal government system, you don't have 100% of the resources that you ever need. Yeah. So who gets it today and who gets it tomorrow is really a big problem. And then when you get to the national level, obviously at the White House level or uh, where I finished here in the Great Lakes, it becomes an international focus. So an oil spill 
on Lake Erie becomes Canada's problem very quickly <laughs> as soon as yeah. the um, and becomes an international incident. And so how do you then um, keep that? So I would say probably just that strategic view of mm-hmm. moving into a broader, a broader view as, it, as, uh, as you get more and more senior. And what about specific to your time at the White House? I can imagine, I mean, incredibly unique role, incredible opportunity, overwhelming. Um, what did you learn uh, and what perspective did you gain and, and what was it like to work that close with uh, the leader of the free world <laughs> and, um, you know, all of the really important uh, people in Washington? Yeah, so like I said, I was born in Benton, North Iowa, so I never thought right. of- the White House, let alone be inside. So initially it was a bit overwhelming, but then you just had to kind of do the task. Yeah. Uh, when I was there, my niece had actually said, you know, they said, well, what does that mean? And she said, well, I think it means that she carries his briefcase and answers his phone. And I'm like, oh, uh, absolutely right. That's funny. <laughs> exactly what I do. Yeah. <laughs> so some of the, your audience will understand the, the football. Um, yeah. In the terms, so that's what the that is the primary role of the military aid. But then you also do very aid like things. Literally, like, does he have his glasses? Does he yeah. have his? Um, has he eaten today? Um, because when a president walks into a room, he generally works the entire room and actually will not eat. I was yeah. there under under President Clinton, so we would always yeah. make sure that he had um, food in the limo. So as he went from place to place, he would at least yeah. have a little bit of a bite, a bite to eat. So. Um, that was really kind of that perspective. And then just to be able to go to foreign countries and see, mm-hmm. um, see how all that transpired. And um, we were, I'll tell you one quick story. We were late um, for a meeting with the queen. And I'm like, sir, we're late with the meeting. We have to be there at the meeting. And he goes, tea will not start until I get there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there is, that's a good point. She probably will yeah. not start tea with the president of the United States without the president yeah. So, <laughs> so I was kind of put back in my place, like, you're the aide. Yeah, <laughs> Thank yeah. you for letting me know the schedule. <laughs> you know, I got into this field, actually, because I, uh, at, at a very early age, we're talking 12, 13, I started reading the biographies of U.S. presidents. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, um, I'm pretty familiar. I've read a lot of books around, um, or about many of them, and uh, uh, certainly Bill Clinton is one. I can imagine, given the fact that he was known to be late more often than not, and he was also incredibly magnetic and and and, and worked the room. And I hear he had a a charisma that just connected one-on-one with people that was kind of magical um, and, and that his resources uh, of energy were, uh, were, were long and vast. And so I can imagine keeping up with him and, and being vigilant about that was quite a task. Yes. And he loved to meet people. And so yeah, that was yeah. primary why he was late because he was probably yeah. very with somebody. So it was for a very legitimate reason, but yeah. you know, again, like he would get on the plane. He's like, June, how fast can we get there? And I'm like, sir, we were supposed to start that event an hour ago. I cannot, I'm not Superman, yeah, not yeah. rotate the earth in a different direction. Yeah. We're going to be late. Yeah. <laughs> we're just going to, we've already called them. They know. So. Uh. <laughs> such a good example too of how sometimes the things we're not great at come from an area of strength that you don't want to lose, right? Like right, I mean, yeah, yeah. connection with people for him was so remarkable. Mm-hmm. I, I also want to comment, June, I think there's a really important learning here for all of us. For you, I mean, before you did that job, you had this huge, a number of huge roles. So like we Great left point. it off of your bio, but you were serving as a chief of staff of the Coast Guard Pacific area. You encompassed six of the seven continents, 71 countries, 74 million miles of ocean, 
Um, then you were the commander, 9th Coast Guard District. You had 6,000 men and women in the Coast Guard that you were responsible for, eight states. So you have these huge roles. And then here you are making sure that um, in the car, there's a snack. And I, you know, I, I just think that's so fascinating because it just shows as a leader, sometimes you need to be flexible. And also, I think the benefit of being a servant leader Mm -hmm. Uh, and how that carries over. And sometimes, you know, you're the leader and sometimes Mm -hmm. you're taking care of someone else. And I I think that's really fascinating part of your journey. Right. Well, I think I always tell everybody, you know, I knew I was going to be doing service. I know that my passion is a heart of service. So I knew I was going to be a nurse or a teacher or something like that. Um, I have my, as you know, as you mentioned, I have a 17 year old daughter um, and she's looking to be a teacher and they're like, she's not going to join the Coast Guard. And I'm like, no, that is a heart of service. I'm so proud that she also wants to give back in whatever, you know, whatever way speaks to her. And so I'm so very proud of her for that. It's terrific. Yeah. I, um, I want to go back to, you talked about this shift in your leadership to be strategic and describe very well. And I know that I see that in my coaching practice quite often, folks that are elevating to the senior executive level or to the C-suite, making that shift from um, often being execution or developing plans for their division versus leading at that higher level. Do you have any advice you give people on how to develop a more strategic vision and to be able to kind of see the big picture and lift up their vision? Yeah, so sometimes it's very hard for the person to make that shift. Mm-hmm. And I was I was actually having this identical um, discussion with one of the people I coached because she was very in, you know, in computers and very into the weeds, but what they really needed was a leader. And she kind of had that aha moment. I'm like, well, if you're here, then who's who's driving, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're in the back seat, who's in the front seat? Um, and so that kind of clicked for her. And then she started to see um, things a little bit, things a little bit better from that perspective. And um, I don't really have a great way for how how most people make that transition other than just provide them kind of examples along the way. What's interesting about the Coast Guard or the military as a whole is sometimes you see our rank um, and you see it has, it starts with a bar, just a gold bar. And I remind people that the rank in the military system is actually based on mother earth. So it starts Hmm. with a gold bar and then the next senior person is silver and they go, well, that's odd because isn't gold more valuable. So no, you pan for gold on the surface of the earth, right? So it's easy to get. For silver, what do you have to do for silver? Do you know? You have to work. You have to mine, <laughs> right? You have to do work and mine for it. Then you yeah. have two silver bars, which is twice the work. Mm. Then it's a tree with leaves, then eagles and stars. And I said, so if you ever want to know where you are in the organization, wow. look at your shoulders. Like yeah. if you're a tree, you should be rooted. You should have technical um, ability. You should know what's going on at the ground level, but you should also be looking out a little. If you're a bird, and sitting on the ground, you are in the wrong place. Oh, it's a great <laughs> metaphor. I love, love it. that. Yeah. So, yeah. That's great. So it kind of helps people to, and then if you're a star, right, and you're into the technical stuff, that's, yeah. <laughs> now the, I would say that the relationship piece, though, kind of transcends all of that. So I, I will say one quick war story. One of, I think one of the greatest um, things that Admiral Allen did during Katrina, when all of the things were going on with the, with the, uh, Superdome and all. He came in, as you know, after um, after the FEMA direct- director was uh, was dismissed. He jumped up. He was in this sea of like a thousand people in this ballroom. He jumped up on a table, and he's not, you know, he's not a light man. So <laughs> to jump up on the table, and he said, "Can I have everybody's attention?" You know, just like a true four star leader. And he goes, 
from now on, we will treat every single family as if they are our own family. Wow. Any questions? And so, as you know, we are still recovering quite a few dead bodies and things like yeah. that. And, and that just resonated. So no matter what anybody did, they knew whether they were logistics and getting water or food, whether they were body recovery, whether they were doing wellness checks, it was about, we will treat everybody as a family. And it just really kind of, so that's that strategic piece that everybody knew, didn't matter what your role. That's terrific. And, and I think that if he hadn't made such a bold physical statement while he's making that mm-hmm. statement, you know, if he would have just sent out a memo or sent an email, it's not the same, right? right. I mean, sometimes right. you got to be bold to get your message across. That's fantastic. Love I that. Had, and mm-hmm. I had once heard that Marriott had a, had a little card that everybody had to carry. And they said, you know, what's, your, what's our vision? Our job is we are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen, mm-hmm. which is kind yeah. of that same thing, right? It doesn't matter if you're the front desk clerk or you're the maid. Yeah. or you're the restaurant worker, it's your ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. If you, you can know, create a mindset. If you have those kind of statements, I think it yeah. really helps. Um, yeah. That story reminded me of, um, I just watched a documentary about 9-11 and President Bush was talking about the night of 9-11 when he was down there on ground zero and he hopped up on actually, I think it was a fire truck that was destroyed. Um, And he actually kept, I think one of the firemen up there with him rather than he was supposed to go down. Um, And he he was just so authentic, so inspiring and so real. Uh, And, and just the similarities about those examples just kind of caught me in that they're, you know, elevated themselves, but talking right at uh, right right at in in leading. Mm -hmm. And I think that strategic view really helps, right? And yeah. so whether you're running a company, whether you're running a cutter, or you're running this eight-state massive, you know, disaster, mm-hmm. what is the vision? What should everybody have in the back of their head when they're doing whatever they're doing? And I think that's probably the most powerful thing a leader can provide. That's wonderful. You're right, because sometimes we get so caught up in the tactics or what is we want people to do. And if you can really change the mindset, then you're going to change it for everyone and all the time, whether you're there or not. I think that's really powerful insight. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, June, you've been on some awesome teams. Tell us about what's the best team that you've been on? Um, hmm. The best team I've been on. I, I hmm. I would say the last team I was on. So I was, uh, so I was head of the Great Lakes um, in charge of eight states in 1,500 of international border, which is wow. the southwest border. Most people don't realize that. Really? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Longer than our, than our southwest border. Um, in eight different states, coordinating with eight, you know, as you know, North Dakota is very different than Chicago, Illinois. Um, and that's very different than Ohio or Pennsylvania. And so, you know, all of those things coming together. Um, and then I think also people just being able to shift with one another. So in the Great Lakes as well, we have both hard water and soft water. So people go, you have hard water? Yes, we call it ice. <laughs> and, uh, and it's very challenging. And so unlike other places in the country, we actually take all of our boats out, the small boats, and we, we put in skiffs or ice rescue. And we start a whole different season of how do you do ice rescue when the spring comes, we take all of our ice rescue equipment, we put it all away, and we go back to soft water season. And so all of those things require um, twice the training than most other places uh, happen. Um, but it just like clickety-clacked, you know, just like a like clickety-clack going down the track. And um, 
and everybody just knew where they were and, and melted together. And so when we had the spikes of a challenge, um, you know, bad ice here, or, you know, we had one suicide while I was here, those mm. kind of things that, you know, everybody just knew where to go and, and who needed to rally around who and who needed to then keep the mission going, which was kind of cool. How did you make that team so cohesive, June? Was it about the people that were on the team themselves? Was it about the culture you created? Any kind of tips that we can steal to make other teams as highly effective? Um, I think it goes back to what we were talking about before. So when I was here, I didn't jump up on a table. <laughs> Maybe I should have. <laughs> or right. <laughs> Whatever works. Whatever you got to find your own way. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but my, but my, I call it a bumper sticker, right? Um, some people do, we actually have to do a command. We have to publish a command philosophy and some people that's like 10 pages. I'm like, mine's a bumper sticker people. First of all, I would have to write the 10 pages and then somebody would have to read it. And you people I know are not reading 10 pages of the command philosophy, so I'm not even trying. That's probably the best thing. I mean, if, if people, if our audience just gets one thing, that's it. Do a bumper sticker, not 10 pages. <laughs> I see it all the time. Leaders think, oh, I have all this wisdom. And the truth is no one has time for that. So I, I love it. Do a bumper sticker, not 10 pages. So my bumper sticker was honor the member, honor the mariner, and honor the memory. And so I always said that honor the member was about honoring each other. But I'm very much like going on an airplane, you have to put your mask on first before you can help others. If we're not well-trained and maintained, we're not going to be able to help the mariner because we're going to break our boats are going to break down before we even get to the case, right? Then the next one, honor the mariner because they're you know the very heart, the very center of what our responsibility is doing that, and that's everybody. So you know, mariner could be somebody on the ice. It could be you know, we we actually had a, a storm in Buffalo where I ninety five or I ninety got closed, and they saw it on the news, and they said people were running out of fuel and water, and our guys, our boats are not in the water. They got a whole bunch of water and like drove out on their uh, skidoos and start passing out water and making sure doing wellness wow. checks on, on a road. <laughs> you know, that's just what we do. So honor the mariner. And then last was honor the memory. So very much like your, um, you know, the long blue line, right? Like your police officers and things like that was. And, and so to translate that to and what I do for coaching, particularly for executives, is how do you translate that to your world? right? Honor your employees, right? Do they trust you? Do you have everything? Do they have everything they need? Honor your customers and then honor the brand, right? Or, and, and so if people know that that's your priority and you're, and you're sequencing, um, I think it helps put people at ease. Like, and I tell people, I would tell people, if you do something wrong that violates Coast Guard policy, I, you crash your, I don't care, you crash your plane, violates Coast Guard policy. If you were doing it in a positive professional manner, I have your back. I will, you know, I'll go to the, go to the mat for you because you were doing what you thought you should do. And so, so we had that challenge a couple of times and, uh, and you have to come through as a leader when you, when you mean that. And so it was, it was a really great experience, but I think that was why. What, what was interesting was I'll, and I'll, I'll take it kind of offline. When we had the suicide, the person who was in charge of that very small unit, he goes, ma'am, you know what I did was I went back and he said, we have to honor the member, honor the mariner, and honor the member. Mm. We need to honor the member who has just passed. We need to honor the mariner, but we can't do that right now because they were they were challenged, obviously, very deeply. He actually mm. committed suicide on the station. Mm. Um, and so he called to his neighboring stations. They cut his area responsibility in half and the two neighboring stations took over for, for a week so they could mm. do the funeral and things. 
And then they honored his memory. And he said, you know, and, and so that worked in every scenario, every situation. So, so for your teams might be, what is that, you know, we're taking care of families that honor the member, you know, what is that for them? Um, and I think that really brings people together. I love that. And I think what it kind of emphasizes the fact that if you had a 10 page document, nobody would be referencing it back in a difficult moment. Right. And by Mm -hmm. staying very concise in your framework, it allows people to use it as a decision model and to use it as a tool. And, And when you're really in trouble, as that story describes, that's when you need some grounding. Right. And by giving you gave that person the grounding to be able to make great decisions. What a great story. Thank you for sharing that. Right. Yeah. And it gives them some place, like you said, it gives them some place to look when, when, okay, there's nothing in the rule book about this one. There's nothing in the rule right. book about a whole bunch of people yeah. stranded on the highway, you know, but Hey, what, you know, what's our, what's our marching orders from our boss, you know? And so mm. they're like, Hey, we're going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Say June, looking back on, on your career um, in, in your experiences, What's a mistake that you've made as a, in leading teams that um, kind of 2020 hindsight um, really le- led to an important lesson that you learned about leading? Um, well, I have to say, you know, one of the one of the biggest. So I've had a lot, a lot of mistakes. <laughs> so like most people who, who ascended to the highest levels, there's there's not the, there's you don't get to those positions without making mistakes. So the first thing I would say is. You know, if you've made a mistake and you're very junior, know that everybody who's done that is also a hot mess. And you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, um, but I, but actually, I was late for an interview, the White House interview. So I was waiting in the lobby. I actually got down to the lobby for the White House interview about a half an hour early because in the military's like time is everything, right? You'd be on time, you'd be on time. And now it's like 15 or 20 minutes past when they were supposed to pick me up, and I'm still in the lobby. I'm like, where are they? Well, I went back and read my email back there on a pager. <laughs> And I was supposed to meet the car out front. Mm. So I'm now 15 minutes late. So I apologized to the driver the whole way there. I apologized when I got there. I was, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Profusely apologized. You know, there were six people interviewing for the job. And I'm like, well, there's no way in hell they're going to pick me now. You know, (laughs) so I went, you know, I shook all their hands and said, thank you very much. and, And I left knowing that I would never talk to them again. When I got hired, I said, oh, I was very surprised I got hired because I was late for the interview. And they said, actually, we almost didn't hire you because of that. And I said, well, I'm sorry. I mean, like, I didn't, you know, I didn't know. And they said, no, it was because you apologized too much. Like, you apologized. You were sincere. Like, Mm -hmm. let it go. Like, we needed to move on to the interview. And you just kept bringing it up and bringing it up. Now, the good thing was we knew that you were sincere and put it behind you. But that was almost a counseling session. Like, don't do that. Hmm. Like, if the military aid screws up, the military aid screws up. I'm sorry, Mr. President, I screwed up. It won't happen again. And move on. Don't sit there and bring it back. And I think sometimes, particularly for women, Mary, maybe you've seen this where people, hey, we did that great sale. Yeah, but I did this. I blew it. Well, stop. You did a great sale. Stop going back to yesterday and the day before. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, to me, it was, was something that I really um, – and my dad actually taught me a phrase that I, that I carried throughout after that was, you know what? when you have failures, your friends know, like your friends are keeping track of your failures. She did this. She did this. She did this. I'm sorry. Your enemies are keeping track. Your enemies already know and your friends don't care. So why do you, (laughs) right. 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 Yeah. Mm -hmm. Enemies Mm -hmm. know and your friends don't care. Stop bringing it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I, yeah, you're so, I think there's so much here that we could, we could probably spend, you know, the rest of the day talking about mistakes and how to handle them as leaders. I, it's great coaching that they gave you, like, glad you apologize, let it go. I have a coaching client who I've been working with on, um, he tends to try and hide mistakes. And, you know, I'm trying to flip his thinking and he's doing a really nice job with it to flip Hmm. that from a mistake shows I failed. I need to hide it to this is fantastic. Now I have an opportunity to build trust, Mm -hmm. right? Something Mm -hmm. bad happened. Oh, that's great. Now I get a chance to build trust with these people that I need to go talk to about this. Like, this is an awesome opportunity for you to build relationship because you don't get that opportunity every day. Right. right. Um, So, yeah, but you're right. And I I think you're onto something with women. We particularly do see women um, over apologizing and sometimes you just own it and then Mm -hmm. let it go. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And and this was what, 24 years ago, 20, it was a while back. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) But I, but I always did carry that, you know, that your enemies know and your, and your friends don't care. That's right. Your supporters, right. Your friends, your supporters, you know, those people who are in your corner. Um, and, and I think the more, and it was interesting because the other analogy that I drew at the time was uh, Mario Lemieux was the, was a big hockey player at that time. Yeah. And, and I saw, I was, and I'm not a big hockey fan, but I was watching a couple of, and he got a couple bad calls and they put him on the bench for whatever the two minutes, you know, that you have to be penalized and you see him, he was like still in the game. Right. And so, wow. so what I learned from that is even if you're on the bench, keep your head in the game. Cause as soon mm-hmm. as you hit the ice, you need mm-hmm. to go where the puck is and you need to see what the pace of the play has been and who's been doing what. And it's actually an advantage to kind of take, yeah. you know, take a step back and see it from an obs- observer's point of view, you yeah. know, where the coaches, where he may not be seeing things on the ice. Um, and so use the bad call, if you will. Um, boy, that wasn't right. I should have gotten that from use that bad call to get your head back in the game. And so when you're called back on, you're, you're on. Yeah. Do you know why they did hire you? Did you get any feedback as to what, what you demonstrated and, and what, uh, what allowed you to stand out from the, from the six or five others that, that uh, so they, they told me a couple things. One was my genuine nature. Um, mm-hmm. and I, you know, and I could kind of laugh, <laughs> laugh at myself. So one of the questions in the interview was describe yourself in three words. And I said, Hmm, a team player. They said, <laughs> and they said, they said, no, 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 we need like three words. And, you know, and I'm like, is that not like a team player? Is that, is that, can the Marine not count? It was the Marine aide that was asking. <laughs> they, all, they all busted up laughing like, oh my God. What they meant was three adjectives, right? So team right. Right. You know how sometimes like somebody's telling you something and yeah. they clearly can tell that I'm not understanding, you know, three adjectives and they didn't say three adjectives. They just, they just kept saying three words. And I kept saying, that is three words. I, three <laughs> more words do you need? I want three words. Um, and so that, that kind of cracked up. And what they later told me was the White House environment, as you can imagine, is, is very intense and very um, hard. And, and their two criteria were, will somebody have my back? If I need to call in somebody, hey, my wife's sick, my wife's in the hospital, can you take my duty? Does somebody have my back? And will you have fun? Because at the end of the day, you can't have somebody who's so intense and have that because it's just not fun for anybody. So can you laugh at yourself? So those were the reasons why they said they, why I got hired. <laughs> That's such good advice for people interviewing. Yeah. Sometimes you forget that as a hiring manager, uh, you you have to work with this person and it should be fun. It's great, <laughs> great interview advice. Love it. You know, um, June, I know you have taken big risks to get where you are. You don't get to be a trailblazer without taking big risks. Uh, 
what advice do you give leaders today as a coach or that you gave them in the Coast Guard about taking big risks? How do you help people make that move? So one of the things that I learned uh, back in back in like 1982 was from Jack Canfield. It was from a little audio tape. You know, remember the cassette tapes? You actually mm-hmm. had to put them over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some of the people in your audience will know what I'm talking yeah. about. But, <laughs> he, uh, he wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul, right? He was a co-author of that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And now I'm formally trained. Um, so awesome. it's great to be able to use these same principles. But the thing he yeah. taught us was, a, was an O. And, uh, and it's, oh, what the heck? Go for it anyway. Because most of the time when we're like, I don't know if we should do this. Should I really, you know, like somebody said, you should go be captain of a ship. I'm like, I don't need, I, I can't be captain of a ship. Right. And this, Oh, what the heck go for it anyway. Right. And so it, it kind of put me past that fear. Um, and then what I later learned was I had a whole team. I had nine people on that cutter whose job it was to make sure I was successful. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then I jumped into training and then I jumped into another cutter um, and then they asked me to interview for the White House job. I'm like, oh my God, I can't work at the White House. Oh, what the heck? Oh, what the heck? Hey, I get to go into the White House and see the inside of the White House. How many people get to do that? And that, you know, I thought that was going to be the end of it, was just interview and leave. Um, and so each one of my steps was really kind of that. Um, so, mm-hmm. oh, what the heck is really kind of the, if people could take that mantra, I think they would really realize how many opportunities are out there that they wouldn't otherwise take. And for our listeners, what you can't see is that June actually makes an O with her finger. So um, puts her thumb and her fingers together and makes an O. And, and what I, I remember you telling an audience one time, you know, if you're if you're nervous, you can even do that for yourself in a meeting and just remind yourself, uh, oh, what the heck? Do it anyway. Right, right. Because mm-hmm. so, so often it doesn't, you know, like one of the examples I used, you know, Mary, if I invite you to lunch and Mary says no, right, I didn't have anybody to have lunch with, you know. I asked Mary, Mary said, no, I still don't have anybody to have lunch with my life. Right. Get any, right. <laughs> right. That's right. I, I love that. I remember I, I had a t- um, really difficult job that I was offered at one point. It was a promotion, but it was um, hugely challenging. And everyone that had taken this job had been fired. And I remember I called a peer of mine, a friend, and I told him, you know, what do you think I should do? I, this, everybody's been fired. This is super challenging. This is pretty, it's pretty scary. And he goes, well, you're either going to get fired or promoted. So you should do it. (laughs) (laughs) And it it was pretty brilliant. And I was like, well, the worst thing that's going to happen is I'm going to get fired, Mm -hmm. but I could get promoted. So, okay. You know, just to your point, oh, what the heck? I'll do it anyway. You know, I'll take that risk. Right. And, you know, and, and I wouldn't say that it's necessarily, you know, jump off the cliff, right? You know, yeah. I listened to other people, right? They recommended me to, to try to go for command of a ship. They recommended me for the White House. It was me who was holding myself back. So mm-hmm. listen to those people around you or ask a trusted advisor. I, I don't think you necessarily want to just, you know, jump out of the plane without a parachute. But, um, but you get some indicators that kind of give, yeah, I could probably, yeah, I could. and even if it's a 50-50, like 50% of people say no and 50%, ah, oh, what the heck? 50% of people say you can do it. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Terrific. Kind of quiet that inner critic. I love mm-hmm. that. You know, uh, Admiral, you've talked about values throughout our interview today in a number of ways with your team. Uh, any, I do want to ask explicitly though, how do you incorporate values in your leadership, whether it's in your coaching work or when you were in the Coast Guard um, mm-hmm. as part of leadership? How do you see that values come into play? So I think what's really important for people to understand and appreciate is values drive absolutely everything you do every single day. And a lot of people don't realize that. Um, every decision you make, 
um, from, from the time that you wake up in the morning until the time you go to bed and even to go to bed are based on values. Um, it's kind of like the roots of a tree. Uh, and I teach values and I do consulting work. I work with the value, uh, Barrett Value Center and do values assessment with teams and, uh, and organizations. But it's really values are the root of a tree. And, you know, when you see a tree and you see the leaves and the abundance and you see fruit on the tree, what is that because of? It's because of the nutrition coming in from the roots, mm-hmm. right? And so if you don't have the values right, you are not going to see the abundance in the tree above. And so that's, so when you see something wrong in your organization up in the trees, the things that you see, look down at the values. How are things really being done? You can have all the bumper stickers you want. You can have all the command philosophies you want. And if your tree is brown, how are things really being done? Oh, I know she says she'll take care of us, but we really don't think so, right? It says that we are supposed to have high quality, but we have to get the assembly line going. Um, and so you kind of see these differences between values. So, um, but you know, the fact that you guys got up this morning because you value getting up and getting a paycheck and working, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what you wear, right? You value what you look like. Some people do not value what you look like. So mm-hmm. um, if you think about every decision you make, it can be traced right back to down to a value that you have. Yeah. So it's really, really important. Terrific. June, going back to your time uh, in the White House, um, so uh, what what years were you there, and which chief of staff or staff did was? Uh, so was I was there? under. Uh, I was there with uh, President Clinton. Yeah. At the time, and, so I was there for his last year, of his first administration, and first year of his second administration. So okay. Panetta and right. And those folks were there. Yeah. And I've read that the the last two years of the first administration were very different from the first two, just in terms of the organization of the White House. And, and Leon Panetta brought a very a, a different style and approach. And, and what some say was exactly what Bill Clinton needed at that time. Um, uh, what else did you learn about yourself, about leadership, um, about the president? And how teams work during your time. I mean, I know that's a really broad question, but <laughs> what else did you learn, and what else might um, might surprise people? I, you know, everybody thinks they know what the West Wing is like, whether it's because of the show or what they've heard or what they've read about on Fox or MSNBC or CNN. But um, curious, uh, like what, what it was really like, and what might be surprising. So I think a couple things. Um, I think people would be very surprised to to know that um, at the White House, there is, there's thousands of people who are there just to make the mechanism called the White House work. Mm-hmm. Right? So you have, for example, the White House Communication Agency that sits there and you know, processes phone calls for different people, for the chief of staff and for the president and those kind of things. Those are just absolute perfectionists and they come from all the services. That is a military run organization. Mm-hmm. Air Force One obviously is an Air Force plane. Um, you know, owned and operated by the Air Force. The people who are on the plane are Air Force people. Um, you know, the the uh, lunchroom there is run by the Navy mess. Um, you know, and so, so what I would say is the political individuals kind of come and go, right? Mm-hmm. So um, they, some of them come from business and, and provide their opportunities. Um, some of them are elected, reelected as they come. But there is this amount of just true... Uh, hearted patriots that are just keeping them mm-hmm. the mechanism run some of them when i was there one person was the was a valet he had been there over 30 years 
um, wow. which was just really cool. And you think about um, his patriotism and his dedication to the office of the presidency of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's just really, um, really heartwarming. And I think a lot of people don't realize uh, the amount of amount of people that do that and civil servants as well. So it's not just military folks. There's um, yeah. federal employees that are also there running the visitor center um, and those, those kind of, for love of country, because they're, they're mm-hmm. not in a big paycheck. <laughs> mm-hmm. For those who know the pay scales, they are not, mm-hmm. they are not big, big, but they don't care. They yeah. are because they love their country. So it's really cool. I feel very fortunate to have worked in DC for five years and was able to, as a consultant work in um, Homeland Security, FBI, uh, DOD, CIA, and different um, <clears throat> Smithsonian, lots of different agencies. And I was, um, uh, I was just amazed at uh, just patriots, civil servants and, and, um, you know, people crack about government workers, but I found many of them, if not most of them, to be hardworking, trying their best, um, motivated to serve, um, you know, being thrown a lot of curveballs, a lot of changing, you know, uh, administrations and leaders. But um, it was it was really heartening in a way and, and inspiring those 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 uh, those civil servants. Yeah, it was interesting to hear some people who would come in and they're like, "Wow, like these people are brilliant. Like these are yeah. you know are." true geniuses of the world, right? Right. You're in the military. And I'm like, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like most of your four-star generals, you know, have, you know, pretty high, you know, pretty high right. IQs and they're, they're not in yeah. there for the, for the money. So, um, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting because the view is, oh, you know, out of high school, oh, you couldn't get a real job. So you joined the military. So that's kind of sometimes. Right. And, no, it's such a great tip training ground for leaders and but that's another conversation for another day yeah what what advice would you give leaders transitioning from the military to, to business to the other settings I mean very different contacts systems and structures but what advice would you give or have you given uh, so first the first advice I would have is find somebody who knows how to dress people <laughs> so, I love so it. five Great. years it's light blue dark blue they're very easy you know yeah yeah <laughs> but he usually tells you <laughs> what sort of clothes to wear? Do you wear a pin? Do you wear a necklace? You know, um, those kind Great. of, uh, you know, and then the, I think the other big thing that a lot of military folks leave. So, and again, part of it is our culture. So we have a name tag. So, you know, my name, as soon as you meet me in the military, and then you usually have your ribbons. So I can tell whether or not you were in Kuwait. I can tell if you were in Afghanistan. I can tell mm. if you're a cutterman, if you're a, somebody who's did time on boats or if you're a pilot, I can mm. tell your whole legacy and then, and then what we immediately have in common, like, oh, you had a cutter, I had a cutter, where was your ship? You immediately have a mm. conversation started just by looking at their suit, if you will, right? Very hard on, and I saw this at the White House, right? So I'm like, I don't know who that, like, who, is that, a per, is that an important person? Because everybody's just in a suit. <laughs> um, and so some of that is trying to, uh, trying to acclimate to that new change. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some of the acronyms. Um, I think the other thing that people can sometimes be intimidated by military people and even mm-hmm. junior military people, like, I don't know if I should talk to that person, you know, they're an admiral or, um, and so I think those were probably the most surprising. I'm actually doing a presentation, uh, coming up at Westfield Insurance, uh, and they asked me to speak specifically, how can coworkers help, um, mm-hmm. help veterans? Um, and, and I think the other piece to that is 
the people who work with veterans can kind of help understand they're a bit of an avatar. You know, not every veteran is the same, but our lifestyle, my daughter moves every two years. My family moves every two years. And my job, my primary job in the military is to make sure that whoever came in behind me succeeds. Because the worst thing you can tell a leader is when I left, if that unit then fails, then I obviously did a poor handoff. It's almost like a relay race, right? Mm. If the next person in the race doesn't win the race, it's because you're running the wrong, a poor leg. Mm. So that's a different, a wildly different mindset. So our very, idea- That's a very, very different dynamic from businesses, CEOs. I mean, that's very different. And, and so the idea of my job is to come in and learn your job and everybody else's job so that we can, you know, coalesce together and move forward is not necessarily, there are some organizations, as you know, who are very siloed. Like my job is to make sure you don't know my job so that you can't fire me. <laughs> and, and, and it's that dynamic of why aren't they sharing their information? Why, you know, boy, when they're out, I could be covering their, their desk, you know, kind of a thing. And that's a very different um, a very different mindset than, than normal. So that's insightful. Thank you for sharing that. But I think to your point, both to help leaders transitioning from the military and also those that want to help veterans transition successfully and, you know, take that peer under your wing and explain to them sometimes the lay of the land and how things mm-hmm. work. That's great advice. And yeah. most of them, and, and I'll say most of them are not from the community, right? So most right. of them, landed like I landed in Ohio I never lived in Ohio and you know I lived in Cleveland on one other tour but um so part of it too is just you know acclimating to the community and and those kind of things because they're not from there they don't have high school friends they don't have the connection and networks that you would normally see it's really helpful thank you thank you yeah um you mentioned family I you know one thing I really admire about your leadership you've been able to have these huge roles and also have a life outside of the Coast Guard. Uh, any, I see so many leaders struggle with this. Um, we can call it balance. We can call it time management. Um, but any tips for having a life um, outside of work when you're in a big job? So what I try to do is include my family, which sounds very bizarre for you know a cutterman. But you know, for example, we we would do fireworks displays, and I would get special permission. Um, up the chain of command and say, can we have our families on board? So everybody would bring their families on board. We're on patrol, but we would still be able to watch fireworks. Great. When we were moving across country, my daughter's responsibility was, okay, honey, what route are we taking? Here's the map. She was 10. Mm -hmm. Here's the map. Here's the place we're starting. Here's the place we're finishing. Do you want to go up and around? Do you want to go through the middle? you want to go down? Mm -hmm. And just to be a part of that. And, oh, along those routes, these are things to see. And along this route, these are things to see. So... Um, so I always try to include my family as much as you, as much as possible, you know, company picnics, you know, there are ways to, you can, you know, bring your daughter to work day or some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I was in parades. Uh, How many daughters get to be in a, you know, get to be in a parade. So right in my car, come on. You know, Um, she's like, (laughs) I'm allowed to do that. I'm like, I don't know, but they're not going to tell me no. Yeah. What the heck, right. We're going to make it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they see this Great. cute little button girl in red, white, and blue. They're, are you kidding me? They're going to put her in the box. Yeah. Oh, I love, I love that. And I, I just think it's wonderful because it helps people to see you as a human being also. And then you get the time with your family. Mm-hmm. I remember I, um, when I was running a stores organization, I went to a store opening and it was local. So I brought my son and he was about three at the time. 
So I made a speech at a podium and I'm thinking, I mean, he's three, he doesn't know what's going on. But he, after, when, when I was done, I said to him, you know, what did you think of this, of the opening? And he said, well, I think the next time when you give a speech, you should say, hi, I'm mama. <laughs> <laughs> he really wanted me, you know, he did not like the fact that I had an identity outside of being his mom. So it was really, I love that. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> But I think, like you said, it does make you human, right? And so yeah. what, are the, what are those opportunities that, and, and that then strikes the balance and it does, it yeah. helps your coworkers see you. It helps the family. Right. Um, yeah. Know, they underway with me? No. <laughs> yeah. Right. But it's nice to think about that blending and, you know, you're the same person and kind of incorporating different parts of your life. That way I think is a powerful way to have some balance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some corporations have had some very creative ways to do that. So, if you know one of your corporate leaders are listening to this, what are the ways that you can bring family involvement? Maybe it's once a month of a picnic. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's mm-hmm. you know what, what creative what, what creative way can you do that? So, yeah, you, if you integrate them and you involve them, they're engaged, right? Like you, engagement is involvement, mm-hmm. whether exactly. it's at work or yeah, family. It's great. Exactly. Yeah. Well, let's uh, kind of end our end our interview with kind of the, the rapid fire questions. You know, with the I'll I'll ask you a few questions, and you can give kind of a brief response, kind of top of your head, whatever comes to mind, and then uh, and then we can wrap up. So um, let's start with what uh, what's the best part of your job? So my the best part of my job is seeing people transform and and getting that feedback. So I was at a local high school and I got a thank you. The teacher, when I, after I did it, uh, made everybody write a thank you. And she said, you came to my high school for one hour and changed my life. Oh. I'm like, oh. wow. so, and, and I do that at the CEO level or at yeah. you know, high school girls. And so she is on now a different trajectory. She's in a different orbit. Her planet has changed orbits just based That's awesome. on, on one conversation I had with her. So, so exciting. That's the what's, best part. <laughs> what's the most challenging part? Uh, being away from family. So my husband will tell you that I travel more now than yeah. um, than when I was in the Coast Guard. And so he just quit his job with the idea that he's full on board. And so when I travel, he's going to start traveling with me, particularly when awesome. I go to college next year. So, yeah. Yeah. What's the one thing you're most proud of accomplishing professionally in the past year? Um. So again, probably that transformation piece. I had the opportunity to speak to a rowing team. Um, and Mary got an opportunity to see some of my, uh, some of my motivation and success talks and uh, spoke with them for 45 minutes. The very next day, they had to do a rowing piece on the ERG, which is the rowing machine. And 83% of the people on that team um, ended up with a personal record, a new PR. And some of them were seniors that had never broken a PR previously, 83% wow. after, again, one session. So really, that is some, that is some secret sauce. Yeah. That's <laughs> awesome. Fantastic. I tell everybody this stuff works. If you use this stuff, this stuff. The other thing that was really valuable about that particular session was normally this is a really big piece and you have to do well, and this is going to decide where you go. And so the tension, you can like cut the tension every single year. And what I, or what the heck go for it anyway. And I made them all write down their goals. When they walked in, they, everybody was high five. Let's do this. Let's do this. And all the coaches are like, what? (laughs) The entire atmosphere of mutual Mm -hmm. support and, was just completely different and so hmm. that was really cool and I know I'm coming back next year for the same for the awesome. same thing. they saw that very valuable 
What is one thing that you are working on improving or fixing or uh, getting getting better at? And despite all of your successes and experiences, what's the one thing you know you need to get better at? Um, hmm. Well, I, I think I always I always try to get better at being a mom and being a family person and being present. I think so often mm-hmm. in today's society, no matter who you are, whether you're the CEO talking to your you know, to your staff is just to be present, just to be calm and absolutely listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I learned this from somebody like okay, that walked in the office, like, ma'am, do you have five minutes? I'm like, no, I really don't. <laughs> but I put a clock on the wall and I said, I'm going to give this person five, five minutes. And I, and I would watch the clock and then try to do, Hey, I really need to go on. But what mm-hmm. I learned was they only needed three minutes. And so I, what I really mm-hmm. learned, was I was the anxious one. And when I did that, it really kind of calmed, calmed me down. So mm. I think that's what I'm continuing. As you can see, I'm a little, I'm higher, I'm high energy. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so being present is really, um, I think it's a big value, uh, valuable asset right now that a lot of people don't express. I think it's really rare. Yeah, totally agreed. Totally agreed. What's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I ever received? Um, probably from my dad. Who said, uh, "If not you, then who?" Was what he. Not you, then who? Was what he. Uh, because I said, ah, "I think I might quit this Coast Guard thing." You know, to be an admiral—that's like one percent of the population. Nobody ever gets it. You know, but the problem is for Coast Guard promotions, like all military promotions, you promote from the people who are there, right? You don't bring somebody else in to be an admiral. So who's on the bus? Yeah, mm-hmm. who's on the bus when the promotion comes? And he's like, "If you get off the bus." what other person is there? What other woman is there? You know, you still have opportunities. So, hmm. so he forced me to see, he made me stay on the bus for another year. And that year I got promoted. So if hmm. not, you then who? <laughs> what about the worst advice you've received? <laughs> least, least helpful advice. <laughs> least helpful. So I will say on my very first cutter, um, I did not know any better. And so I, as you might imagine, was a bit of a hard charger. So I, They gave us a checklist of what they call personal qualification standards. So tie a knot, you know, do a lookout. You have to do all these things and you get them checked off by somebody who's qualified. And I, I thought the goal was, you know, goal is here's a checklist, get it done. Right. (laughs) Usually takes about six months. Well, in about three months, I'm nearly done, but people had been on the cutter almost six months and were nearly with Mm. all the signoffs. And they said, stop doing that. You're making us look bad. And I'm like, uh, (laughs) are we supposed to get this done? <laughs> so I did not listen to them and, and continued on and, you know, was recognized by my superiors. It, it caused a little bit of a rift though, because mm-hmm. the culture, you talked about culture earlier, Mary, mm-hmm. right? The culture was, Hey, we are kind of all on the same pace. This is how long it takes. Nobody get out of line. And I didn't sign up for that. <laughs> Good for you. Wow. That took courage. I yeah. love that. I love that story. What is your favorite thing uh, to do and, and favorite way to spend your time outside of work? Um, well, so mostly with family is yeah. my, is my favorite, is my favorite time. So, and I have a dog, so I did some obedience training with her, which was really fun. A little dog, Lucy. So oh. spending time with her, spending time with family. My mother-in-law's mo- recently moved in with us. So that, uh, that also keeps us busy. And then finally, um, what advice would you give that uh, young, uh, new Bowling, uh, Bowling Green State graduate uh, <laughs> back in the day? What advice or words of wisdom would you, would you impart? 
So what's really great is in October, October 25th, I have the opportunity to present uh, in front of the College of Business uh, Women in Leadership Seminar that they're having. So I'll have awesome. 600 Bowling Green and University of Toledo graduates uh, or uh, students that are going to be at that conference. And my number one takeaway is going to be, oh, what the heck, go for it anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> might it. as well. Yeah. I love it. Love it. Terrific. Well, Admiral Ryan, I just think uh, this has been so inspiring. I know I've taken away a ton of great insight, and I suspect many of our audience will want more, and they're going to want to make their own personal record like you did for the rowers. So where can people find you online if they're interested in keynotes Mm -hmm. or coaching or uh, workshops? Tell us a little bit more about how folks can get a hold of you. Right. So I'm I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm, my goal this next uh, this next year is to launch a new uh, a new Facebook challenge. So uh, follow that on Facebook, and they can always get me on my web uh, webpage juneryan.com. And I would love to be a motivational speaker at one of the upcoming conferences. Awesome, wonderful. Well, and Ryan, thank you so much. I love this time with you. I know our audience is going to love it too. And to our audience, if you enjoyed this, please subscribe, tell a friend. We want to get the word out. Our goal is to share great wisdom from great leaders. And we certainly got that today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Everybody take care. We'll talk to you soon. And remember, oh, what the heck, go ahead and do it. All right. Okay. Bye-bye.